Thank you very much, Asli, and welcome, everyone. Uh, it's wonderful to have, as Jim put it, an A-list um, group of speakers here today. Um, it's a really great pleasure. I'm honored to chair this panel. So I'll do the introductions one by one, and then I will have a few comments that I've written in order to uh, be on time. I've written everything down. So our first speaker, um, Leila Shirin Sacker, is assistant professor of film and media studies and a faculty affiliate um, in the feminist studies department at UC Santa Barbara. She received her PhD in media arts and practice from USC and an MA in Arab studies from Georgetown and an MFA in digital arts and new media from UC Santa Cruz. Her creative research uses computer analytics, visualization, and immersive world building, world building techniques to map how participation in social media has influenced the formation of a virtual body politics. Her innovative scholarship has appeared in such academic venues as Middle East Critique, Cinema Journal Teaching Dossier, and the reviews of her digital and media work have appeared in the journal Science, the Wall Street Journal, and the Guardian, among many others. So please join me in welcoming her to the podium. And uh, he came to give a talk recently at UC Santa Barbara, and he was talking about the difference between these data bodies and real bodies, and that his work is around a performance matrix between data bodies and real bodies. And so he was like, what are these data bodies? So I want to start by introducing what my data body is and what my real body is. So my data body is something that you can assess from my credit score, my GPA, my transcripts, perhaps my sad bank account. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, definitely some sort of body metrics are in there. How many calories? This thing has my data body, right? Um, that's my data body. And a lot of decisions are made based on one's data body. You're just, how many, I mean, I couldn't have bought a house if it weren't for my credit score. My real body, here it is. Sometimes this body has really short, straight hair. Sometimes this body can get dark. Sometimes this body it can do all kinds of things. It was little, and now look at it, and it's going to get even older. Um, so he was telling us the story about uh, somewhere in Louisiana, 1970s, um, his two friends, two of them transgendered from male to female. And at the time, it was illegal for females to be topless in public. So they had just done the surgery, had brand new breasts, and very proud of it. And he kind of said, all right, I want to, let's do this um, disturbance. I would love for you guys to take off your shirts and drive around center of town in your, in your convertible, and let's see what happens. So they did it, and they got pulled over. And the police said, OK, can you pull out your driver's license? Now on the driver's license, they are male, right? So what do you think? Do you think that they went to jail? Or do you think that they were male and got off? I mean, legally, men, men could be topless. Women could not be topless. I'm just going to ask. Who, who thinks? Who thinks they got off? Of course they got off. Of course they got off, because the data body wins, all right? That's the point I just want to, I just want to sort of highlight the importance between these two uh, people, my real body actually has a lot of, um, it's a 
not really strong, right? There's a lot of things about my real body that uh, will face a lot of discrimination. Okay. So <clears throat> I position myself in academia a little differently, I think, than most of you. Um, I'm a designer. Uh, and in uh, 1982, uh, Nigel Cross was commissioned by the um, Royal, Academy, Royal College of Art um, in London to do uh, research on design and general, general education, like how do we bring in design. And it became a part of a very large study that was published by many other people. Um, but essentially what he came up with was that there are three areas of knowing, three ways of knowing. Um, and traditionally, it's the sciences and the arts and humanities that institutions have, um, have uh, used to teach and, and to educate. Um, but he's proposing that there's actually a third way of knowing. And again, I uh, just want to remind you this is 1982. This is the same time J John Berger is writing his work in anthropology. So um, his argument is that while in the sciences you study the natural world and the humanists study the human world, designers study the artificial world. Uh, the method used in the sciences is controlled experiment, classification, analysis, which I, I use some of those scientific me methods in my own research today. In the arts, it's analogy and metaphor and evaluation and critical studies. Um, but in design, it's pattern formation and synthesis. The primary value or what we're, scientists are seeking is this idea of truth, which is debatable. <laughs> arts and humanities folks are seeking supposedly justice for all. And the designer is seeking through using empathy and practicality appropriateness for different situations, okay? So I just want to give this, um, I lay this out because I think methodologically from a very, like a very, very epistemological level of knowledge production, I'm coming from a very different perspective. So my questions today are, um, my work is, that I'm presenting to you is part of a larger book manuscript that I'm putting together and I'm going to read you parts of chapter one. So I would really love any critical feedback. Um, I'm trying to theorize uh, a new uh, media theory that addresses the logics of programming and how they've influenced and shaped 21st century social movements. And to study this rise and fall of social movements, um, I focus on Middle East and I focus on Egypt in particular and there's a reasons for that which I'll get to in a little bit. Uh, the book is actually divided into four chapters and it narrates a web of historical moments after the US invasion of Iraq. Um, and it, through analysis of archived um, internet relay chats, IRCs, and digital campaigns, training manuals, technological forums, and 30 billion social media posts uh, and an ecosystem within an ecosystem of widespread increased internet connectivity. And it's in this context that I um, take on my research. Today, uh, I want to focus, there's a lot of different parts to this, but I really want to focus on my idea of algorithmic resistance, which I have recently switched, um, recently in the last couple of weeks, to, to start thinking about it as a glitch resistance, and that is being informed from my art practice. And um, so I'm going to be 
back and forth between the algorithm <laughs> and the glitch because that's where I'm at. So let's think about this for a second. Um, these are the guiding questions. So how might a design thinking approach to analyzing humanize the scholarship? So if we're not just looking at data anal analysis as data, but if, we're, if, if we start thinking of it in, from an empathetic point of view, if we're trying to design um, uh, a model of what that data is supposed to represent, then perhaps that can help humanize and, and offer a humanistic reading of something that's usually dedicated to the sciences and the social sciences. Um, and then the other question is, how do uh, digital media disrupt our understanding of geographic boundaries, which I will get, which I want to sort of articulate in my idea of algorithms of, at borders and how these algorithms have been used to um, completely uh, get rid of the border and put up the border at will. Um, and then in what ways do feminist digital practices work to interrupt the dominant ideology of maximum efficiency, which really drives a lot of the uh, corpus models. And I pu pulled the idea of ideology of maximum efficiency from Lyotard in his, um, in his work on the postmodern condition. And then lastly, um, what new insights emerge from studying the operational logic of social media on the uprisings? Like, let's look at the, the algorithms. Let's look at the technology, the formal construction. All right, I've got two going at the same time. So I begin um, by thinking of the algorithm as a cultural object. What happens when you do that? It opens it up. Um, the study of the algorithm explores how to develop methods and techniques to solve problems in an efficient manner. That's the intention of the algorithm. However, in contemporary society, the logic of maximum performance then uh, is driven by the logic of maximum performance or efficiency. So then the glitch or the failure of performance undermines the fetish fetishization or the fetishizing of 100% efficiency, accuracy, and predictability. So within the logic of maximum performance, a glitch may sound undesirable. However, it signals an opening beyond the confines of information control, and it is celebrated as productive, a generative force uh, within art practice, and it's also disruptive, destabilizing form of, with radical potential. The glitch um, favors the faults, the failures, the malfunctions, the disturbances, the bugs, the error, and the noise. So um, to demystify the algorithm, I, I, I think of it as a cultural object, and I, I, I pose these uh, inquiries. One is um, the, his, uh, the fact that the history of the algorithm predates computation. The word. Um, many people this know, in this room know the word uh, is over a thousand years old with an etymology traceable to the Islamic scholar Al-Khwarizmi. Um, so, but our contemporary algorithms are, necess are necessarily computational phenomena? I don't think so. So then how can we understand the explosion of discourse about algorithms in popular culture in the last decade if this is something so old? Two, Algorithms are more important than computation. So what does it mean to study algorithms as a myth, as a narrative, as an ideology, as a discourse, as a power, as a recipe? In what ways can these approaches contribute back to the ideas of concepts of, within computer science? And then the opposite. 
algorithms are specifically computational. Um, so what kind of uh, applications or activities are now possible given certain developments in our computational infrastructure and theories of computation, like big data, deep neural networks, um, distributed computing, um, and then um, algorithmic bias. And this is something that you know, the computer scientists always want to harp on, <laughs> and I always defend, which is um, training data and codes biases. So you have to train data collections to make sense of them, right? So data collection feedback loops, for example, you find an area with, with crime, send the police there, arrest more people, and then you'll get more st crime statistics. Subpopulations have different observed trends. Minority populations necessarily represent smaller portions of the data. So when I was doing my regular uh, analytics of uh, social media hashtags on the Middle East, Hashtag Yemen was always eclipsed by hashtag Saudi KSA, no matter what, no matter what was going on. In fact, no matter what was going on, the, the hashtag on Saudi and KSA were eclipsed every other conversation in the Middle East. And that has to do with uh, another conversation about bots and robotic and automation. Okay, so I just wanted to sort of define that, and then I want to get to my idea of how these algorithms were used as a form of resistance creatively and uh, technically. Um, I'm going to skip this idea. I just want to like, give you an idea of what the glitch is. So a glitch is an error, right? It's a, it's a noise or a disturbance. Uh, we don't know where it comes from etymologically. There's traces in Yiddish. Um, but in 1960, it was used by... Uh, John Glenn in, refer in reference to the astronaut into robots in space. <laughs> um, and something had gone wrong with the actual operational logic of the, of the, uh, ro of the what's the thing that goes in space? Rocket. Rocket. <laughs> right? So what's interesting is that he's, he says is that these, in English, there are these sudden surges of current. That's what a glitch is. A glitch is not a thing. A glitch is... Um, a glitch is to send astray, to, to take into another pathway. Because all algorithms are a set of a series of execu executional out, uh, commands. So you do this, and then you do that. It's like a recipe. First you put the eggs, and then you, you know, heat it, and then you do this, and you, then you do that. Now, if you take one of those commands and you lead it astray, that's what a glitch is. So then you, you, what you end up doing is all of the stuff that the technology is supposed to hide becomes apparent and is made visible. And that's something that um, I think the programmers um, and the Arab techies in 2011 were using. So I'm just, for the sake of time, here are some representations of glitch art. I wanted to give you an idea of what the glitch does. Here you can see it takes an image. These are uh, art pieces that I've put together for various reasons. But it, these, this process is to take one um, color and pull it all across the image. And so what happens is these images, um, I think, get humanized by the, they, looked, they look messy. They look messed up. They look um, disturbed. But it's a computational disturbance because the lines are very neat, right? So there's something um, not perfect about it. And the not perfect about it is what 
makes it human, if that makes any sense. Um, so, all right, I'm just going to, so that's the theoretical uh, background. The idea is that um, essentially I, noticing, here, let me get back to this. Is that better? Yeah, those were pieces I had been doing uh, using the glitch technique. Sure. <laughs> Is that what you're asking for? Um, okay. So what, I, what you do here is like, so digital images are not representational, unlike, oh boy. Digital images are not representational, they are made up of pixels. These are all little dots. These pixels are square. Every square is only one image. You can't make a rounded edge with a square. So, and there's no, and that square is just one image. You can't make it into a gradient, so you can't have edges. You just have these boxes. And therefore, to take apart, you think this is a picture, but it's actually behind it. The thing itself, the file format itself is simply zeros and ones, just to be metaphoric, but it's simply, you know, code. It's not a line. It's not the color red. It's not the representation of the image. It's a digital um, algorithmic representation re of it. All right, so I just, uh, this is kind of where I think um, algorithmic resistance can um, grow and has pr room for um, new imagination and new imaginative worlds and places that we could uh, be together. Now, I want to read this little piece, and then because I'm out of time already, I want to finish with, the, I'll just jump to the conclusion. Um, but in 2004, just to give you a little bit of history, on 2004, uh, on March 20th, 2004, Egyptian programmers Ala Abdel Fattah and Manal Bahay al Din Hassan uh, first went live with their blog, Manal and Alat's Bitbucket, free speech from the Bletches. They were exploring and experimenting with web pl publishing platforms that would help other groups and small initiative have web presence. For example, the Muslim Brotherhood. Alat and Manal were at the forefront of making content dynamic. They were techies using technology to liberate content producers from techies. Um, so it's very similar to the work that Aaron Schwartz was doing. Um, so in this uh, attempt to liberate the users from their own technology, they became their first users as they started to test out their ideas and their, uh, their blog became the earliest blogs to come out of, the, out of Egypt and the region. And they were 21 years old. At the time, I was an open source designer and uh, web builder building Arabic and English websites in academic and activist communities in Washington, D.C. And I met Ala and Manal in 2007 through an Arabic network of designers and programs, programmers on Drupal. And I had uh, gotten to know them because I had been through um, uh, Aaron Swartz in the United States. So here is where I think these boundaries, these geographic boundaries, I don't know what they mean. 
Like, I have a hard time looking at my primary sources and telling you wh what country this is about. Because this is, what, Aaron Swartz is in um, the United States. He was in Boston, and he was in New York a lot. And uh, there's an IRC chat that I have with him, and then Vijay Om Amal and, Gil and Gilad Lotan, who's also in New York, um, and Bessa Safadi. And what they were talking about is basically how we can change um, the web, for the markup language of the web so that it became intelligible to everybody, to regular people. And so that opened up the possibility for non-programmers non to use technology. Um, and at that time, at the same time, this was uh, around 2004, 5, 6, in Egypt, there was a project for software Arabization. I guess if you remember back when 2006, we couldn't get the Arabic on the screen because the Arabic glyph was humongous. No, it was tiny, and the English was very huge, and then the Arabic glyph didn't connect because no one knew that the letters have to connect to make a word. Um, and so there was a lot of coordination that had to happen between the programmers in Silicon Valley and in New York and then over there. and. Um, so there was a group of uh, uh, open source software developers on Drupal. Drupal. Um, and you can see here we are. And this is how lots of, this is how and where a lot of the revolutionaries in Egypt met. We were building um, libraries. Um, as you can see, um, interesting information, but you can see how much is still left to be done. I think there's a what's left somewhere up there. Um, all right, I'm just going to then pop to the conclusion. If I can use a computer, which is very funny. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, so there was like this a lot of growth in Egypt. Here are some of the pictures of the Egyptian bloggers. They had a website called Blogs uh, Torture in Egypt. That blog no longer exists. A lot of these blogs are no longer alive. And then we have Facebook launching in 2004, Twitter in 2006. Um, bloggers now going to jail in 2006. This is 10 years ago. And, and then by 2009, the Berkman Center starts publishing these uh, maps of the blogosphere. And I find out that the largest discussion forum in the world, and it was a big deal, it was billions of people, was Hagas Mahafatfat, which is Fatafat, Egyptian uh, women on a forum talking about, uh, I don't know what. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to jump to, I have a lot of visualizations, but to suffice it to say, all of these can be critiqued. All of these algorithms need to be critiqued from the, from, the, from the very level of the programming because the programming language was, used to be primarily in English, like the word stop, start. So all the programmers who are using other languages had to like, learn English to be able to use it. So there was, there's been a lot of um, problems and a lot of need, desperate need for a critical eye on the work that's being done behind the scenes for all this technology. Um, I believe, in, I, I think that we're a moment of, of failure. 
uh, and we glitched, the system has been glitched, and now we're celebrating our failures. <laughs> um, but I think just sort of in the, in the, uh, in the vein of Jack Halberstam um, and, his, and his idea of queering fa failure, if, your fa if the failure is the failure of a system, a status quo, a normative dominant hegemony that you don't want to be a part of, perhaps failure of failing to be a part of that system is not necessarily a failure. All right, well, we'll we will just uh, show videos later. Thank you. Our last speaker, Elliot Kola, is Associate Professor of Arabic and Islamic Studies at Georgetown University. He received his BA in Middle East Studies from UC Berkeley and his MA and PhD in Comparative Literature from UC Berkeley as well. He has published widely on modern Arabic literature, culture, and politics. He's the author of an important volume, Conflicted Antiquities, Egyptology, Egyptomania, Egyptian Modernity, and the translator um, of several works of contemporary Arabic literature, including novels by Ibrahim Aslan, um, Idris, the, uh, Idris Ali, etc., and, and others. Professor Kola is also a novelist, and his n noir novel, Baghdad Central, appeared in 2014. Please join me in welcoming. Great. Thank you so much uh, to, uh, to all of you here at UCLA for uh, giving me a break from uh, the East Coast this week. It's really great to be here and then to be with this um, group of colleagues that I, I get to read, uh, but I never get to meet in person or rarely. Um, my paper today uh, is coming out of a longer project um, that has to do with uh, how activists use literary forms and how um, writers use activism to develop their craft. Um, so just to give you a couple examples, today I'll be talking about poetry, uh, which is pretty easy to see, I think, in terms of social movements. Uh, other, form, other literary forms, for instance, uh, novels and memoirs, have a different relationship, um, and they oftentimes have a relationship uh, to the aftermath. And in fact, that's something I'm really thinking about quite a bit right now, not the peak of activism um, so much as troughs of activism, what happens after, um, say, an uprising has been put down. Um, I couldn't bear to talk about the present, so um, I'm actually talking today about a, con a, a long, uh, a, a long um, history of, um, that you'll see. I'm trying to, it, it takes a lot of um, reconstructive work just to see that material because it's usually not written down um, or archived. Um, but I am, I, and I just, there's an argument that I would put out now, but I don't have a chance to say it in my paper, is that this, this culture actually provides ligaments, um, important ligaments between moments uh, of revolution and between um, protest cycles. So the argument I'm, the material I'm looking at today, it's a, it's a strange ahistorical argument I'm making, um, but I, I uh, in the paper, but the explicit argument is that the protest cycles of, of say, from 1968 to 1977 in Egypt, um, those become scripts for the protest cycle that begins, say, in 2000 and continues to 2013. So, um, so rather than talk about what writers are writing now, um, I can just tell you really quickly, novelists are writing dystopian novels and tragedies. Uh, I don't really want to read them, and I don't really want to have to talk to you about them. So I'm going to talk to you instead about this, this, um, this more historical material. One last thing to say about this is that this kind of poetry that I'm going to be talking about is usually not given its 
full due. Literary studies people overlook it by and large as not really good literature um, uh, for all the reasons uh, we could talk about aesthetic judgment. Um, uh, there's a couple figures we do talk about, like the poet Ahmed Fouad Negum, who appears in my story today. Um, but he's just really the tip of the iceberg. For someone, a poet like that, to come into being, there has to be um, dozens, if not hundreds, of other poets working uh, far from the spotlight. And um, there has to be a broader culture um, that somebody like that can emerge from. So literary critics, by and large, don't look at this stuff. And the same, by the same token, social movement theorists don't look at this as well for different reasons, mostly because as a humanist, I would say they think of it as an ornament, but as Lisa Wedeen told me today, it's because it's epiphenomenal. So I'm gonna start using that word more often. Um, uh, and so, um, no, no, right, right, this, like I'm, I'm parroting this. Um, so I'm, th this, this material basically just falls out of, of our view. Um, so let me begin. Not all social movements in Egypt have employed literary forms to the same end, but it is remarkable how consistently and prominently poetry has been within especially leftist and Nasserist movements and organizations. Uh, this is because poetry is not something that's employed or used during assemblies and demonstrations or marches and occupations and sit-ins. Poetry is not something that can be separated from the activity of Egyptian contentious politics at all. Poetry is so central to leftist repertoires especially that during many actions there is no difference between the performance of activism and politics and the performance of poetry. I mean this really in the most banal sense. Egyptian activists almost always are engaging in some form of poetry, declaiming poetry, chanting poetry, singing poetry, dancing, uh, when they are engaging in what we would call political action, when they go to the street, when they hold events, when they stage strikes or sit-ins, even when they hold business meetings in political parties. They do it also when they do battle with the police. So um, the poetry is largely, a, I'm, I'm going to be calling this today mo uh, movement poetry, and I'd be happy to talk about it more, but it's re really largely of two kinds. The first kind is the slogan poem, which is um, usually um, composed informally and presented and circulated as if it had no author for really important reasons. It circulates as if it were a sponta spontaneous outcry, improvised uh, and uncomposed. The other way that slogan poems diverge from other poetry forms is in terms of their size. And most of them are just quatrains. Um, the majority are actually couplets. None of this poses a problem for thinking about them as poetry, though, because there's other genres of Arabic poetry, in colloquial and in classical, um, uh, that, that have regular conventions, uh, these same sorts of conventions of rhyme, meter, and purpose. So in one study of the phenomenon, the only one I know, um, my colleague in Cairo, Kamal Mugith, has mapped the various rhetorics and genres of slogans. Um, and they're pretty broad, from champ the idea of championing and cheering on and praising, to invective and shaming, to complaint and demand, to elegy and exasperation, um, and, it, and it goes on. I've written about this, but over the course of the 18 days in 2011, hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of these slogan couplets were composed and sung by tens of thousands of people at the same time. The form wasn't new, uh, even if the scale was. Crowds of hundreds or even thousands of people might sing rhyming musical slogan compositions that could go on for many minutes. 
without having known the composition prior to the action and without the aid of amplification. Most of the slogans had very brief half-lives, picked up one day and discarded the next. Others remained in circulation for much longer. Uh, still others disappeared one day to be recycled at a later date. And this process of reuse, as I discovered as I began my research, could go on for decades. I found lots of um, slogans from 2011 that were reiterations and reuses of slogans from 1977, 1973, 1972, uh, and, and further back. While informal, this kind of movement poetry is not left to chance. Groups routinely rely on individuals known for their knowledge of slogan traditions and their cleverness with words. As part of the preparation for an event, slogan composers called mu'allafin hatafet in, in Egyptian are asked to compile lists of slogans that the group will try. The process is informal, and it's common for multiple lists to be created by multiple uh, hands uh, on any given day. Um, lots of organizations will have committees. So for instance, the 2007 tax collector strike, which people in this room have written about, um, uh, it's not surprising to find out that they had, of course, a slogan and poetry committee, Lagnet el hatafat wal shi'r, and that ensured a steady stream of new material. Uh, same with the student movements of 1972, 1973, 1977. We see this over and over again. There's um, oftentimes slogan or poetry committees. Um, accounts of, say, ultras describe similar patterns with committees dedicated to reproducing songs and slogans, painting lines, and so on. Those who compose slogans always draw on a wealth of discourse that is already known. Famous songs, uh, lines of songs or poetry, recent or timeless words of a pu public figure, advertising, slogans from previous actions, sometimes with no modification, sometimes with very little. Originality counts, but only if it's presented in the form of familiarity. A good slogan is one that sounds like you've heard it before, even though you've never have. That's what one slogan composer told me. Within activist groups, there are individuals known for their loud voices, stamina, and courage. A strong um, song leader, or hatif, is given the task of leading the chants, sustaining them in difficult times, and knowing when to change course and to adapt. So um, I'm just going to give you uh, a great song leader that some of you in this room may know, uh, Kamal Khalil. Yeah. <laughs> 
Kamel Khalil. I'll talk about him in a, a little more in a sec. Slogan poems are infused with a collective ethos, as I hope you just got to see. Participants in the Egyptian Revolution regularly describe how the act of joining demonstrations fundamentally altered their feelings and understandings of themselves, their communities, and the possible. Some descriptions of this feeling echo Victor's Turner's, Victor Turner's concept of communitas um, and, and other sorts of um, notions of collective effervescence to um, steal from Emile Durkheim. In their accounts, activists suggest that the act of singing and moving with large groups of other individuals uh, created a, a certain sudden and palpable sense of community that had not existed before. And because, because slogan poems involve embodied actions taking place in particular situations, their significance is only partly um, semantic, only partly linguistic. They are always accompanied by dancing and props, giant puppets, giant puppets to borrow from um, David Graeber, or rough music uh, to borrow from E.B. Thompson. And these in turn transform streets into stages and activists into actors. This is theater. The craft of slogan composition is never detached from this craft of slogan performance. Many of the best song leaders, like Kamel Khalil, pictured here, uh, are also known as the best known, uh, the, the song leaders are oftentimes the best slogan composers. Improvis improvisation is built into the process of composition itself. Resonance with the familiar counts as much as originality. Innovation matters since uh, successful slogan poems are fresh ones, but the unit of composition is not the line or the word, but rather formulas. Slogan poems are constructed out of received sound patterns and set phrases that can be repurposed to suit a variety of occasions. Longtime activists are keenly aware of the provenance of contemporary slogan poems and how they build upon earlier instantiations. As more than one person told me, far from being a problem, the recycled, inherited quality of slogan poetry is a virtue that allows movements to see connections between different periods, situations, and demands. So at the core of slogan poetry is a practice of bricolage. New compositions are made from formula gleaned from movement traditions, to which are added more occasionally references from news headlines, pressing social issues, official state discourse, nursery rhymes, pop culture, consumer advertising, folkloric motifs, you name it. On the spectrum of the employable, the terms old and new really are describing neighbors, not opposites. Um, all right, so that's for slogan poetry. The other kind of, um, the other kind of poetry is, um, is, is, is much more familiar. Um, and, and here it, it, we see it a lot in staged readings of poetry, ideally with poets reciting their own composition, compositions. And these are a regular feature of Egyptian social movements. As ritual events saturated with meaning, they are often remembered as a focal point of strikes, sit-ins, and marches. Readings are um, also a regular feature of routine organizational meetings and political assemblies. Um, I'm just going to, I just want to uh, tell you about one, uh, well, uh, about two. Um, so it's not that activists thought of poetry, it's not just activists who think about poetry in this way and use poetry in this way, it's that this, um, the official um, state uh, records also t um, kind of reinforces that they also understand that poetry is proving to be important. So. Um, 
so in, in one uh, state account uh, from 1977, we can see how this regard is, um, plays out. Um, so here is from a police informant uh, from 1977, a police informant's testimony from January 1977, and, he's, um, and this is his account. At about 1 p.m. on the 17th of January, there was a gathering uh, at the pathology lecture hall of the Veterinary School of Cairo University. The singer Adli Fakhri was there and the poet uh, Hamdi Eid and Farooq Hajjaj. Adli Fakhri announced that the government had raised the prices on some um, commodities. The students goaded those present at the event to take a stand against these policies, trying to create an atmosphere of chaos and hostility toward the government by various anarchistic tactics. Again, this is a, a police informant giving testimony. And then Hamdi Eid stood up to recite some provocative poems like the one in which he ridicules Sadat. And here it is. For your birthday, your, your highness, we'll all drink down mugs of unsweetened coffee. Put, we'll put out your candles and pray that your God goes easy on us and leaves their price alone. If all offspring were like you, may God protect us and cancel procreation and ripped out our eyes as if you were a sewer spilling out on us while we float away on your poverty. So this goes on. Um, I've asked people who, uh, who say, claim they were there. They uh, remember this poem, but it, the only place I've ever found it written is actually in this police um, uh, informant's uh, report. The head of state security for Cairo at this time noted how student and labor activists repeated slogans to, quote, incite the man of the street to join their movement. Picking up on this, Mamdouh Salem, the Speaker of the Parliament in 1977, described this in a, in a public speech. Quote, their activities are remarkably similar wherever they work with respect to the content of their slogan poems, Hitafet, and written slogans, Sha'aret, which they repeat to incite the masses to inform, to join them. It's useful in this, uh, it's useful to mention in this regard that we confiscated from the accused many of these slogans handwritten on loose sheets of paper, inside notebooks, and on broadsheets, and so on. Let me give you another example. It might be the last one I give, get to give you today. Um, and this is an example from use, how poetry figures in a, uh, in a sort of a routine meeting. So this comes from the Egyptian poet and activist Ahmed Hassan. Uh, who describes the place of poetry in a meeting of Hezbo Tagamu in Helwan in the late 1970s. At this meeting, the poet Abdurrahman al abnudi a leading movement poet of the 1960s with unimpeachable left not nationalist politics, had been specially invited to read a new poem, Su'il uh, Su As, Market of the Age. And that poem employs a uh, the language of markets to condemn the tired American-Soviet um, terms of the Cold War and to tug on the discursive openings of the post-Nasser moment. But in the context of Sadat's and Fatah and the neoliberal valorization of free markets, Abnudi's choice of the market metaphor uh, was a little too ambiguous for some. Before Abnudi could begin, the crowd, or some in the crowd, began to boo. Uh, my uh, yeah, they, I think it was some, but they, you'll see, they, they take it over. Um, people began to loudly declaim well-known li lines from El Abnudi's rival by this time, the poet Ahmed Fouad Negam. And here's my 
translation, but it doesn't do justice to Saudi Nauri al Kalamangi, Halabadin al Shafatangi, right? And this goes on and on. Um, uh, troublemaker, con man, big talking word man, religion milker, sponging grifter, sitting in a prayer line, stuffing his face with bonbons. Some days he puts his marks on, others. So um, you, get the, you get the point. Negum had penned this poem a few years before while in the Kanata prison in order to excoriate Sadat's pious public persona and his reactionary politics. On that day, however, the invected was meant for El Abnudi. And the challenge couldn't have been clearer. Activists were accusing him of selling out the same free-for-all marketplace praised in his poem. Though incensed, El Abnudi kept his cool. And when the heckling subsided, he raised his voice. And he read from his poem, let our words take their time, uncle. Don't call it freedom if my voice is not my own. Go ahead and respond when a question comes out. Better than that than letting your hating, than your hating me and moving in for the kill. Um, in an instant, the mood turned. Abnudi was showing his audience another possible way to think of their moment. And as those lines sank in, and with it, his simple call for open debate instead of ad hominem denunciations, Abnudi raised his voice and began to recite the entire poem. OK, so for, um, I, I need to conclude here, and I'll, I'll try to do it as best I can. For activists, Negum's lines provided the language to denounce an ambiguous stance vis-a-vis Sadat's infatah. In repeating Negum's work, these cadres came to own them, speaking as if they had composed them. At the same time, by speaking Negum's words, they came to speak with one voice. As Lisa Wadeen has argued, public performances inherently contain spaces, uncertainties, and openings. And these are what allowed activists to interrupt Abnudi's poetry recital. By the same token, they're what allowed Abnudi to absorb the assault and to turn it back on his attackers. While this event, an event from 1977 may not be widely recalled, the poems themselves are, which brings us to the last dimension of this um, exchange I want to tell you um, about, which is that this poem um, from uh, uh, Negum's poem, which was published um, and circulated originally as a Saudi and Nawari, is mostly known, however, by the title Halawila Ya Halawila. Uh, which was performed by Sheikh Imam, a standard of his repertoires from the time of that period. Renditions of that song were not only played by amateur groups, but they circulated by way of uh, audio cassettes, widely shared among activists, and so on. The same active dynamics obtained for these recordings. In other words, audiences don't sit passively listening to lyrics, but often sing along, especially in groups. And in this way, it's not uncommon for movement cadres to effectively memorize vast numbers of poetic lines, any of which might be effectively used at different occasions to crystallize a sentiment, to reaffirm, reaffirm core values, to frame otherwise inchoate or shifting situations, and to disrupt the framing activities of opponents. Poetry in such scenes is not ornament to the business of contentious, politi contentious politics. It's also part of the language of contentious, contention itself. Moreover, this scene shows how the meaning of poetry goes beyond the words of the poem. These poems uh, are there as linguistic texts, but they are also pretexts for performances that are embodied and physical, and they are cerebral and ideological, all at the same time. In these performances, cadres can raise their bodies, their voices, and stakes. They can shout out, and they can shout down. 
With poetry, they can take stances, and they can begin and end debates. In sum, these scenes illustrate how poetry is a context for politics, a commonly shared agenda item in political meanings uh, from, from basically 1968 to the present, and a language for dissent and debate about the nature of politics itself. And finally, they are the arena in which those debates take place. <laughs>